Hi, and welcome to Women CEO in Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Neil Haley. Today's guest is Emily Rasmussen. She's the founder and CEO of Grapevine, a collaborative giving platform that helps give, giving circles launch, grow, and succeed. She was the founding executive director of NYU Center for Ballet and the Arts, launched the Lincoln Center at the Movies Global Media Initiative, and developed innovative financing models for impact at Enterprise Solutions to Poverty. Emily has consulted on event cinema for the Disney Theatrical Group, taught creative and cultural entrepreneurship at SUNY Purchase, and also developed microfinance and fair trade programs in India and was a professional ballet dancer. She is well-rounded and I'm so happy to have her on the show. Welcome, Emily. Thanks so much, Marissa. Great to be here with you. Thank you. So um, you had quite a quite a, a vast experience, uh, and especially in like the entertainment. Why don't you talk a little bit about kind of your journey to and from you know being in entertainment and and ballet and all that other fun stuff, and then going into starting your own company? Happy to. Um, my my career has been a bit varied, and I think it it might stem from the fact that I was homeschooled growing up. So my family pretty much encouraged us to pursue whatever our interests were, and um, not be too concerned about sequential steps. <laughs> so um, certainly has been a, a varied journey. Um, the way that I got into ballet, uh, well, the way that I got from ballet into microfinance, and then on to starting a company. Um, really kind of stemmed from the time where I had an injury in ballet and had to take a step back. Around that time, 9-11 happened. And so it just had me thinking um, bigger about what I wanted to um, do with my life and what I wanted to be involved in and support. And so I started uh, focusing my studies on international relations and spent some time at the UN actually working um, at the United Nations through an internship after leaving ballet and pursuing an undergraduate degree in in, um, foreign affairs and economics. And so that was a really pivotal time for me to make that big transition from the ballet world into um, this international relations world. And that's where I learned about microfinance and became passionate about this community-based model of financing for impact on this very local level. Um, And so I continued to work though um, on that microfinance work while also continuing to explore arts and culture and actually looked at financing for arts and culture. So I was always interested in bringing these different uh, sides of my my life and interest together. And it was while I was in business school that I was able to launch a crowdfunding platform, um, which was crowdfunding for performing artists. And that really was an attempt to kind of bring some of the microfinance work that we were doing together with um, my passion for supporting artists. And, And at that time, what was just a burgeoning interest in tech and thinking about how tech could really help expand access to financing for impact um, and just uh, create new types of communities that could come together and support causes and communities as a collective. Um, So 
that was the the path. Uh, ultimately, after business school and and launching a crowdfunding platform, there I went into the nonprofit sector and uh, spent many years at Lincoln Center and NYU. And it was through that work that I I saw how powerful um, the nonprofit model of engaging donors through community and collaborating with them more directly could have, and uh, felt like crowdfunding was such a powerful model for access and inclusion, but it also um, was becoming pretty transactional. And I felt like it was really missing something um, that I was seeing in the offline world uh, where nonprofits were really connecting with donors and donors were connecting with each other. So it was through that that I thought maybe we can create a, a better model. Maybe we can create a more purposeful giving experience online. And it was um, leveraging those learnings that we were uh, we started thinking about this collaborative giving model and started developing some tools to facilitate that. Uh, but it wasn't until a few giving circles discovered us and reached out that we realized there was this whole grassroots movement um, that was afoot and really needed good tools to support the work that they'd been doing in communities locally for years, for decades, actually. Um, and so that got us um, connected to that movement and supporting um, from there. So. That is so great. Yeah, I was going to go, Marisa, with this is basically say this uh, figuring out the way to convert in a very difficult thing in the nonprofit entertainment type of things where there's crowdfunding, coming up with a way that can really reach local communities and stuff like that. It's a tremendous mission. And once you figured it out, you didn't just want it to benefit yourself, but other people as well. Isn't that how it's kind of grown from where you started? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that, Neil. I think for me, this microfinance movement um, was always so exciting because of the impact it could have by moving funds to places that needed more support for the good work they were doing, whether it was creating art, um, because that was always a challenge for us in the arts world, um, or it was investing in local communities for education or um, food initiatives, things along those lines. And so um, for me, the, the finance piece has always been a means to an end. Um, and, uh, you know, we all have different things we're passionate about, right? And so while I'm really excited about uh, the arts and a number of other causes, but that being that first one for me, um, I see other people just as excited about other causes. And so uh, this model is, is so exciting because it really opens up that opportunity for support for a broad range of, of causes and communities. That's so great. You know, it's so many people think, you know, they have all of these ideas that they want to change the world, right? But they don't actually do it because they're afraid, right? It's like, who am I, right? I'm one person. How can I change, make change? But you really are having a global impact on, on what you're doing. Um, where does, where do you find that drive? Like what, what keeps you from do you ever do you ever have that self-doubt or do you ever come across obstacles that make you go, maybe this is too much for me? Sure. sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think the the question I've asked myself in those moments is if not me, then who? Right? Is there someone is there someone else that's better placed that should be doing this? And and often when you take a moment to step back, you realize, well. Maybe there are others who could be doing this, but they're not, or there's, you know, it just, it kind of helps reframe that question um, instead of it feeling like you're being too audacious to being like almost feeling a sense of responsibility, right? To step into that challenge and 
Um, and I think that can be really fueling as well on those days where you're tired or things aren't quite working out. Um, you just need to call it a day and show up again the next day. Um, but yeah, I find, I find the fuel from the larger potential impact of things very helpful. And, and also um, just the feedback from community members, from organizations, um, very helpful, right? To, to, to know that, to get that direct feedback from people who feel that the work that you're doing is really supporting them with their ability to make an impact and to connect with others in a meaningful way. Um, I find that very rewarding. That's that's really great. So I'm I'm really curious about the name Grapevine. A lot of people name their companies, and it re- means something really personal to them. What is what is the word Grapevine? Where did where did that name come from, and what does that mean to you? So it was a process that we went through early on um, to find a name. We felt like we wanted something that really reflected the the connection and the community elements of the work that we were doing. We also loved how this giving circle model felt so organic. People were just kind of coming together in community and practicing this model on their own. Um, and so we liked the idea of having some organic, natural element to the name. Um, and so Grapevine was one of several names that we brainstormed, but we really, we really enjoyed all of that. Plus, for those who know the song, heard it through the Grapevine, um, a big part of the giving circle model is about discovering nonprofit organizations and great causes through the network, through people sharing their personal experience through storytelling. Um, and so that was an added um, bonus when we were looking at names. And um, ultimately then it, of course it came down to is this name available for the use that we're looking for all of those kind of basic business questions. Um, but we were able to make it happen. and was really excited about it. I love it. I, I do like that song. There are probably a lot of people out there who've never heard of it. <laughs> um, so, so on your journey to becoming a CEO, uh, what, what are some of the challenges that, that you come across that, and, and how do you overcome them? What are some of the things that, that you find the most difficult in, in running this company? I think there's simple ones of building and supporting a team to do their best work. And I think when you are building a team, everyone is different. People are motivated by different things. And so learning that and and finding your own authentic leadership style that works for you and also for your team um, is something that I found a rewarding process, but also constantly learning um, and trying to improve on that. I think some of the other challenges and, and bigger challenges, frankly, have been more around getting support for the work that we're doing. Um, uh, as a social enterprise, I think there's more difficulty for us to raise traditional funds from venture capitalists and other um, you know, traditional investors in, in companies. Um, with that being said, we've been able to find some really uh, wonderful investors and funders of our company and have had to really be thoughtful about who we approach and um, and making sure that we're really aligned in what we're trying to do as a result of that. So I think ultimately that challenge in a way has been good because it's, it means that the people we've been able to pull in who are uh, philanthropists, foundations, impact investors, and more are people who are really aligned with the work that we're doing. But that's certainly been a challenge finding, finding those people along the way. Um, and then the last thing that I'll just mention is I think it's it's interesting being a female founder and the experience that one has um, 
and how that compares to other founders. I, I found early on that my, my experience as a founder seemed to vary differently from many of the other classmates of mine graduating business school um, until I connected with a few female founders, also classmates of mine who graduated um, with me from business school. And we have a very different experience. I find so much more alignment um, and shared experience with them than I have uh, with any of um, my male um, classmates. And so I just, I find that interesting, you know, the stats around female founders are, um, are interesting and challenging and kind of unfortunate um, to see, but it's, it's been helpful to find those other female founders where there's alignment and we can connect and um, share and um, you know, just support each other through that, that experience. What do you think some of the, the major differences are? Like, what, where do you see the disconnect between the two? Well, so fundraising is certainly one of them. As I mentioned, I, I am running a social enterprise. And so I think there's that added element that can be difficult in the venture um, capital space. But um, these other female founders that I connect with every week, their companies are in the more, some more traditional tech and um, health tech, um, femtech spaces. And they've encountered the same challenges. Um, and so they've, we've all struggled with fundraising. And I think when we've dug into that further, we've also identified like certain types of questions that we get that are really frustrating um, that, you know, some of the stats anyway show that women often get more of the questions around, um, you know, risk of how are you going to handle this uh, challenge or, um, are you going to mitigate this risk as opposed to how big is the opportunity, which tends to be more the types of questions that men would receive, right? And so we, it's helpful for us to identify that and talk through those and share strategies too of how to reframe questions, for example, um, to emphasize the upside potential of something and do that kind of work together. Um, but those are just a couple of examples. So it's almost like they're questioning whether or not you guys can achieve, actually achieve results rather than, you know, just assuming from, from a male perspective, assuming they're going to retrieve results and what does it look like? Whereas they're question, almost questioning. Um, it's interesting that, that with fellow CEOs, women that you, that you talk with, that it's, that it's a consistent message. Um, it's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that. And so I find it really intriguing, not surprising, un unfortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, it'd probably be really good to, to like pull together some of those stats and, and write a book on it or something, because that's, that's um, it kind of shows you how, how, you know, especially investors, how they look at women, right? Do they actually see value in, in what we're trying to achieve in this world? And do they actually see, you know, do they think we're competent, uh, which is on an individual basis, yeah, we might get that right in our careers and stuff, but as a whole, if we're running a company, they're really behind unconsciously questioning whether we're competent of, of being successful. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to, to say or to question. Um, the stats though are what they are. And so when you look at that and then you add to that some of these personal experiences um, that I've I've had or that I know other people who have had, you know, it, it starts to, yeah, it's a challenge that we all need to be aware of. And I know a lot of it is uh, people don't realize even, you know, 
whether you're a man or a woman, what your biases are. And so it's good for us to look at those and question those. Um, but yeah, it does, it does create a more challenging environment and we see it in the fundraising numbers, you know, women raising what it was up to 4%. I think it's back down to 2% or something of all venture capital goes to women, um, fund, uh, led companies, founded companies. So there's clearly a very small, very, very small percentage. My goodness. I didn't think it was that low. Um, do you find that, do you find the investment that you're looking for because you're, you're working with nonprofits is lower, a lower ask than those of your, you know, your peers that are looking for like tech investment? Um, it's a great question. I don't think so. Um, I think if anything, we should be getting as much or more in order to scale the work that we're doing. I think what we're working on is just as scalable, if not more scalable and more impactful than a lot of things that I've seen that are raising large venture um, rounds. So I don't think there's any reason why that should be the case. Um, I do think that because that because we've had more of a challenge identifying investors to, um, you know, support the work that we're doing, it's also meant that we're more frugal with, with the resources that we raise, right? And more, more thoughtful about where we spend and if we spend on things. Um, and so maybe that means we, you know, we look at things, we look at our budget and think, oh, we can do more with less, which in this current climate is actually a great skill to have. I think a lot of investors are asking their portfolio companies or, um, potential companies to to do that to look at how they can make a dollar go further um but it's a catch-22 i actually had an investor once say to me you know i got the sense that you would be conservative with your with your spend but in such a way that it was kind of it wasn't considered a it didn't feel like it was a positive statement you know it felt like oh you're not <laughs> you're not ambitious enough and it and i remember thinking well you know, I, I'm ready to spend money when we have something to really spend money against. And I think we're at a point where we're really at that growth stage and we certainly have a lot of great ways to put money to work. Um, but whether or not um, we can get the investors and, you know, just the broader funders behind us to do that um, is a question. And what's interesting is that the, the traditional funders that we've made the most headway with um, recently are those who really don't listen to the story as much as they just dig into the numbers. Um, because when you just look at our numbers, they're extremely compelling and super exciting for any investor. But when they hear nonprofit to your question, Marissa, you know, how does that affect your fundraising essentially? You know, there's something, there's some red flag or something kind of switches in their mind and suddenly it's, uh, there's um, more hesitation. So I, I found that to be interesting that the story, um, how important that is, even, even when you have really compelling numbers. And so when you just focus on the numbers for us, that's been, that's been actually a better way to make more headway with some of the more traditional investors. Um, as far yeah. as like, how big can this be? How many people really do care about nonprofits? You know, how, how impactful could this company be? And um, anyway. That's, well, that's because perfect. nonprofits are typically, you think about them with lack, right? Financially, they, they, they lack. And so the people are paid less and their initiatives cost less. And they're always, you know, they're struggling to, to get the finance. And you're, you know, in order to do something to help them out, you have to help them find grant money and things like that. So there's like this whole, um, you know, mindset around nonprofits 
And so that's why I was wondering kind of how that affects you. But if you can show the financials, right, and you know enough to be able to show the financials, then then that can show them that, you know, how successful it could be. That's right. That's right. So, um, so what do you do? I'm sure running, especially a nonprofit, right, or is uh, or helping nonprofits. Uh, it can probably be emotionally, um, uh, you know, heavy, right? Because you're dealing with with companies that really need your services, right? Because they have such a need. Do you can do you, do you connect with them on a level that's that you know? that you find yourself, you having a lot of compassion and empathy, does that play into your decision and working with them? Um, and do you, do you carry that with you uh, in, in how you move with them? Absolutely. I mean, I think our whole team is really committed to the mission of the organization and, and believe strongly in the work that we're doing. And so I think, for example, just one example of that as a startup, I think the conversation is often about making that big bet and then how big could it be and let's go for that and if it doesn't happen then we'll just shut down for us just shutting down is not really an option you know it's like we can we're going to go after this big opportunity to be this large global organization doing this incredible work around the world if for some reason that doesn't happen um, we have backup plans in place right to where this organization and everything that we've built and the community that we've connected we have 26,000 people on our platform now and over 600 active giving circles, um, that that will continue. And so I think that's uh, a part of that is just feeling a sense of responsibility and commitment to the communities and, and the people and the organizations that we're supporting and making sure that, um, you know, we do whatever we can to really scale this and get as many people involved and organizations and good work um, happening as possible. But if for some reason we're not able to uh, to achieve that ultimate vision that what we have accomplished thus far doesn't just go away, right? And that this work that we have been doing and these communities we are supporting continues. Well, I can see you definitely achieving that. I love what you're doing. I think it's really important and nonprofits definitely don't get enough support out there from, from, from anyone. So I do appreciate that. Um, what do you do to make sure that you don't burn out? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I get outside. I try to get outside and I love to be out in nature. I, I grew up in a log cabin in the mountains. So for me, being outside <laughs> and going for a hike or um, paddle boarding or something in nature is, is just very, um, it's a nice break. And it also just is a, a great refresh for me. So I try and do that as much as possible. Um, and when I'm in the city and, and not in the open air, I try to go to see performances. I'm a big performing arts fan. Obviously, my background um, comes from that. And so uh, going and seeing an inspiring dance performance or music, theater, I'm always seeking those things out as well. That's great. Do you still dance? I want to say yes, but the reality is no. I haven't been in a dance studio <laughs> before COVID, so... Um, it is on my to-do list though. So I'm hoping to get back into actually taking classes. Well, you can still do it at home, right? We can all dance in our living rooms, uh, you know, at home. So it's a, it's a great, great mental health practices to just throw on some music and dance, you know, even when you're not feeling it. So 
But thank you so much. It's been great having you on the show. How can people find you? Grapevine.org. Find us there. Check us out. Um, Would love to help you connect with the Giving Circle movement. Find a network with purpose near you or focus on a cause you care about so that you can connect with other like-minded people um, and get involved in the movement. Or maybe you're even inspired to start your own network and um, create a Giving Circle for a book group or an ERG or um, some other group that you're a part of, we'd love to help you do that too. So just grapevine.org, find us there and we'd love to connect. Terrific. Well, thanks for being on the show, Emily. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Marissa. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Women CEO in Reflection. To reach out to one of our guests, their contact is in the description of the show. Do you want a total mindset transformation? Apply to Mindset Warrior, The Art of Intentional Thinking, my personal coaching boot camp at IamAMindsetWarrior.com and schedule your call with me today. Thank you.